a concern you might have, you notice a fairly long outline, which means we'll probably get out about 2.30 this afternoon. <laughs> and since I've only preached here, this is the, what, second time since my retirement, the temptation is great. <laughs> but I'll make a deal with you. If you'll listen fast, I'll try to preach fast. The Bible is the record of God's story. Not all of God, because when it begins in Genesis 1-1, in beginning, it's talking about the beginning of His creation, not the beginning of God. For He existed already, before time. He existed in something that I don't understand, and neither do you, no matter what you say. He existed as one God in three persons. I don't get that. It's beyond human comprehension. But the, the story that we have, theologians talk about the meta-story. There's this big story, the sweeping story of God. And embedded in that sweeping story are a lot of little stories that have the same exact pattern. And you could summarize the pattern, the story of God in this way. Creation, rebellion, redemption restoration, God's glory. That's how He does it. I sat there this morning and reveled in the fact that we sang about that today over and over again. We sang in contemporary style and we sang in more traditional style and all of them talked about it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to leave the God who loves me. And so, there is this, this same pattern, and it's told over and over again. It's told in nations. God creates. He created the Jewish people to be a light to the Gentiles. He started it. It was His idea, His sovereign choice, not because of their quality, but because He chose them. He created them, and what did they do? They rebelled. And God had to come time and time again. And the Old Testament is this sweeping, repetitive story of how God comes to a rebellious people. He redeems them. He restores them. And as He does that, He gets the glory. That's the pattern. He does it with individuals. If you're a Christian, that's your story. That's the story of churches. It was 1880. The interesting thing is, just before we moved into the year of 1880, there were essentially four churches in the little village of Rocky Mount. Did you know that? The first one was the Primitive Baptist Church. It was established in 1744. Do you understand that that church was established before this nation was? Then, as time went along, by the way, there's a building that I don't know whether they still meet or not, but down where Hunter Hill Road intersects with Benvenue. That church is the Primitive Baptist Church. Then there was Mount Zion Baptist Church. The African-American community, Christian community in this town formed a church. They formed their church before this church was formed. Then, I think that was in about 1871, and then um, there was a the Methodists formed a church. The Episcopalians formed a church. The interesting thing is, you know, the church has a mission, and we've talked about that a lot over the years. Um, 
the church has a mission to make disciples so that people are being conformed to the image of Christ, so that they're fleshing out the nature and character of God in the world, so that the world sees His glory. But in 1880, there were four churches and 21 bars in Rocky Mount. So apparently those four churches hadn't done a real good job. And there was a man named Noah Biggs who lived in Scotland Neck. Noah Biggs had been captured by the love of God. He had been a rebellious person who had been redeemed and restored. And he wanted to see an evangelical witness, a missionary Baptist church in in Rocky Mountain. And in 1880, he, with a small group of people, gathered in a little hotel here, and they formed Rocky Mountain Baptist Church, which became First Baptist Church. Now, there was a slight problem. It was a small handful of people who knew whether they could succeed or not. They had about $200, and that was enough to buy a part of a block in Rocky Mount. You know where that part is? It's where our family ministry center sits right now. It's where the old sanctuary sat. But they only had the $200, and that bought the land, but it didn't build the building. And Noah Biggs provided $750 to build a little wooden church. That would be about $21,000 in buying power today. Let me ask you a question. Would you be motivated to give $21,000 of your money to a little handful of people that might or might not succeed? Well, you might be if the love of Christ had conquered you. Interesting. And Luke and I were talking this morning about how when you have the luxury to think about a sermon over a period of time, every time you think about something changes in it, doesn't it, David? <laughs> and I thought this morning, well, isn't one church enough? And I'm going to tell you it would be if that church perfectly followed Jesus. Every town would have one church. And we would all have to admit that we don't follow Jesus Perfectly. I quoted a minute ago, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we are that way individually. We are that way as churches. We, the, the Jewish people have been that way as a nation. And you know, one of the problems with our human frailty is that sometimes it can make you want to give up. I mean, how many times has this church had glorious experiences? Did you know that when that old building that was built was probably the finest building in this town, Do you know the first day they walked in and worshiped, they were debt-free, they didn't know anybody anything. And you know why? Because every person in that church saw it as a mission and they did what they could do. There are stories of widows buying one brick because that's all they could afford. This building you're sitting in, when all the consultants said there's no way in the world you're going to raise the money required for this building, which was about $3.1 million. And if you were here when we walked into this building the first Sunday, you know that in less than three years we were debt-free. And not one penny of budget money was spent to pay the debt. You see, when God gets his hand on a group of people and they do what he calls them to do, he is able to display his nature, his character, his qualities, and he gets the glory. And that's the pattern. Creation, rebellion, restoration, or excuse me, redemption, restoration, and he gets the glory. Now, we've sung about God's glory. We've talked about God's glory today. What in the world is it? I mean, it's one of those religious words we throw around. 
Is it some mysterious light that we might see off in the distance? No, let me tell you what God's glory is. God's glory is the tangible expression of His nature and His character. And when you see God being faithful, even when I am unfaithful, that's His glory. When you see Him being long-suffering, that's His glory. When you see Him sovereignly channeling the heart of a pagan king to accomplish His purposes, that is the revelation of God's glory. God's glory is the tangible expression of His nature and His character. Not only has this church had some wonderful times, there's one that you may not even know about. Remember some years ago when Life Action came, they brought about 25 people, and we had a two-week-long revival. Every night except Saturday, two and three hours a night, and people showed up. This place was appreciably full. What you may not know is the guy who was in charge of that team came to me the day they got here and said, I don't want you to tell another soul about this. You're you're welcome to talk to God about it. But he said, our ministry is $60,000 in the hole. And I'm praying that God will provide the $60,000 these two weeks. And oh, by the way, you're not allowed to pass an offering plate because we don't want anybody to think we're about money because that's not what we're about. They put a box in the choir room. You had to go out of your way to find it and give. And he said, I'll never mention it. I would ask you to just mention two or three times during the intervening two weeks that we come on a love offering. There's no guarantee, but that's all I want you to do. Three times I said that to this congregation. Would you like to guess how much money this congregation gave that team? $60,000. And God was glorified. When God acts, that brings him glory. That's what his glory is. Well, Bill, if you say there probably should only be one church in every town, if that church was absolutely obedient to Christ at every point there would be, then why? What's the deal? I mean, we'll look at our own church. Let's be honest. We've had some wonderful, wonderful times where God showed up. God is a wonderful God, but men can be bad men because we're frail and we fail and we fall. And even the best of us at any moment can make the wrong choice. And so this church knows what it is to go through pain. It's happened more than once in this church. The church has been wounded deeply. But I want to tell you that the God that we serve is the God who creates when that creation rebels rather than turning his back on that creation rather than walking away when I am disobedient. He says, okay, let's redeem, let's restore, and I'll get the glory. And that's the pattern. It's the pattern. It has always been the pattern. Luke has already said in the next few weeks he, he will be talking about God's story here and, and our part in that. And by the way, God's story is going to go on till its completion. The question for me is whether I'll be a part of it or not. And yes, I am frail. If you've ever read the book that's the history of this church, it was interesting to me that in the preface, Ms. Lee, who I, I, we, I had just come here in 1976 as minister of music at the time that this, she was finishing the book. 
And she wrote this in the preface. We stand in awe and amazement as we view God's accomplishments using our fragile strength, undeterred by our weakness, sin, and little faith, quite aware of the frailty of humanity. So God displays his glory, and it's a pattern. And from the human side, it's an imperfect pattern. But from God's side, it's the way he works, and it's the way he displays himself. So here's the question this morning. What what will keep me? What will keep you plugged into God's story? What will motivate you, even in the hard times, when you fail or somebody else fails, what will motivate you to stay plugged into God's story so that you can be a part, you can be part of the instrument that he uses to accomplish his purposes in this town, in this church? I think Henry Blackaby gives us some insight to that, and those of you who have taken experience in God will remember this. Henry Blackaby would admit that, you know, theological positions are wonderful things to hold until you have to actually flesh them out in tangible ways in difficult times. And Henry Blackaby would say, I always thought that I knew God loved me no matter what. But when his 16-year-old daughter was diagnosed with leukemia and there was the probability that she would not survive that leukemia, he had to admit that he was beginning to doubt God's love. And he tells, and you may remember this, he says at one point that he was praying and God said to me, Henry, where did I demonstrate my love for you once and for all? Well, you know the answer to that. The cross. And God then said something that, that Henry Blackaby said changed the way I approached everything for the rest of my life, and it was this. God said to me, never interpret any circumstance in your life without seeing it with the backdrop of the cross. So what I want to do this morning, and we'll do it quickly, I want to take a passage of Scripture that most of you know from memory, John 3.16. And I want to remind you of seven truths about this love that God has for us. Why am I doing that? Because in the coming weeks, I want you to hear everything that Luke says about this church and God's plan and God's story with the backdrop of God's love. And I'll tell you why. He might be able to motivate you for a while, but either he'll blow it or he'll move or something will change. I might have been able to motivate you for a while, but I guarantee you it wouldn't be sustained. Your commitment might carry you for a while, but you are frail and your commitment will wane. There is one thing that will motivate you to stay consciously involved in God's story, and that is if you never forget God's love for you. So let's walk through John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. The word there for world is the word cosmos. What does that mean? It means he loves every rock, every tree, every star, every planet, 
He loves every animal. I'm not sure how he can love a possum, but <laughs> he loves all that he created. He loves all that he's created. In fact, if you read the Genesis account, uh, as, he, as it walks you through the creation, what does he say at the end of every step? It's good. But then the pinnacle of his creation is man. And what does he say about man? Very good. Why? Because man has the ability to relate to him. Man has the ability to love God back. But with that comes the ability to choose. We can love God or we can shake our fist in his face. And so I want us to think about it a minute. For God so loved the world. Now, I'm not going to tell you anything right now you don't know. There are three basic words for love in the New Testament. We have one. I love my wife. I love my dog. I love chocolate. I love to hunt. I love to fish. I love to fly. And those are all different kinds of love. But the Bible is much more precise in the New Testament. In the Greek, there are basically three words. One is eros. It's the word we get the word erotic from. It, it is the physical expression of love. There's the word phileo, filial love, Philadelphia, friendship. That's the kind of love that says, I love you if you love me back. But those are not the two words that are used here. You see, God's love is unconditional the word that is used there is the word agape, agapeo, agape. It's, it's a kind of love that, that loves because of the nature of the one doing the loving. It has nothing to do with the one that's receiving the love. Now hear that. God's love is unconditional. There are probably people sitting here today that are believers and have failed at something. And you struggle with whether God still loves you the way he loved you while you were being obedient. And I'm going to tell you that God's love is unconditional. His blessings aren't, but his love is unconditional. You may be here today, and you don't know much about this thing called Christianity. And I'm going to tell you that wherever you are and whoever you are, God's love for you is unconditional. That is the literal word that is used for the love that describes God. It is all about his nature to love, not the need of the recipient of that love. I can neither cause him to love me more or cause him to love me less. He loves me because of who he is, not because of who I am. It is unconditional. There was a, years ago, C.S. Lewis attended an international conference on comparative religions, and the story is told that when he came to uh, the arena early before he was scheduled to, to speak, he realized that they were arguing over some things about what made Christianity unique, and there were some that said, well, it, it has the idea of incarnation. And they pointed out that there are other religions that say that their gods took on some fleshly form. And there were others that said, well, it's resurrection. And, and they said, well, there are other religions that claim that, that their God has an eternal kind of existence. And, uh, and finally, somebody turned to C.S. Lewis and said, what do you think? Let me read to you what he said. Oh, what makes Christianity unique is easy. It's grace. Only Christianity has a God who loves with no strings attached. 
Every other religious practice earns their God's favor. Only Christianity has a God who is love and expresses that love by giving to us the gifts of forgiveness, mercy, and love based on His nature and activity and not ours. If you want to know whether you want to be engaged in what God is telling in terms of a story in this place, then you keep remembering that God loves you unconditionally, and that will motivate you to love Him back. Secondly, God's love is sacrificial. God's love is sacrificial. For God so loved the world that He gave. Now, you may think of the sacrifice on the cross as the preeminent gift, and it is. It's an expression of His love. But sometimes I think we don't fully understand the full gift that was given on the cross that day. Some of you may know the name Stuart Briscoe. I'm not sure he's still alive. Fairly well-known Bible teacher and preacher, but he started out, he's a Britisher, he's from England, and the first years of his adult life he was a banker in England. This is before computers. And he tells the story of, of sitting one day with these big leather ledgers. And he said, I started daydreaming about maybe the ledgers in heaven. And if I could go look up my name in heaven, it would record all of the, 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 the debt that I owed. And he said, and I, I, as I saw it, I saw God look at it and recount all of my sin debt. And then I saw God do an amazing thing in my dream. He said, I saw God write across all of my debt transferred to the account of Jesus Christ. And he said, man, that's wonderful. That's love. And then he said, but God did something then even more amazing. I thought he was through with the transfer of my debt to Jesus, which, by the way, the Bible says is exactly what happened on the cross. He took my sin, your sin, and put it on the back of Jesus, and Jesus paid the price. But he said, then I saw God do an amazing thing. He flipped over to the account of Jesus Christ, and he wrote of, over all of Jesus' righteousness, all of his perfection, all of his perfect obedience, he wrote transferred to the account of Stuart Briscoe. You see... God gave. It's sacrificial. He gave not only Jesus as a sacrifice for my sin, He gave me the righteousness of Jesus so that when He looks at me, praise God, He doesn't see me. He sees the righteousness of His Son. It's sacrificial. And so, when you think about being involved in God's story over the coming weeks, remember that God loves you with a sacrificial love. God's love is valuable. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He didn't have a plan B. Now, I don't fully understand the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I just know that it's, a, it's been a, from, from before time, it was a, an uninterrupted relationship. 
But do you understand that on the cross, one of the things that happened, not only did Jesus bear the horrible pain of crucifixion, but there was a point at which God the Father turned his back on God the Son because that's part of the payment for sin. And Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, what makes something valuable is there's not much of it. Gold is valuable because it's not all that plentiful. Diamonds are valuable because it's not all that plentiful. Some time ago, uh, somebody needed something that I had. They wanted to borrow it, and I just said, no, just take it. I'll give it to you. They argued a little bit and finally took it. And you might say, well, Bill, you are awfully gracious to give away something that's yours. And let me tell you something. I wasn't gracious at all because I had two more just like it. <laughs> there was nothing that cost me was not sacrificial, but God gave His one and only unique Son. In fact, the reality is because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one, God gave Himself. So when you think about your part in the story in the coming weeks, just remember that his love is sacrificial, and it's very, very valuable. God's love is personal. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Isn't it interesting that God uses that picture of relationship? I mean, couldn't he have given somebody else something else? But he gave his son. It's personal. God's love is not some generic thing that you can't pinpoint. God's love is personal. I've heard it said that if, if, if I were the only person in all of human history that was going to bow the knee to Jesus, Jesus would have still died on the cross. It's personal. God deals with me personally, and he expects me to be a personal expression of his love. The fellow's name was Joe. He was a drunk. He lived on the street. And he, like any other, many others, and some of you have may have ministered in this kind of a setting, at a local mission, the people living on the street would often come and endure a sermon by some local pastor because that was a requirement to eat and have a warm place to stay that night. And for some reason, inexplicably, although if we understand something about Scripture, we know it was God drawing him. One night in a sermon, Joe heard for the first time what had been said over and over again, and he bent the knee and became a believer, a follower of Jesus. And it changed him. He was different. He became the most compassionate, caring person. In fact, he felt it his duty to help other people that were coming to that mission. And so he would clean the toilets, he would bathe and put to bed a drunk while he was still drunk. He would do anything he could to serve people. And some months later, in another meeting just like that, another drunk heard the gospel for the first time. Oh, he had heard it, but this time God opened the veil, and he really heard it. 
he went to the altar and was kneeling at the altar, and the young pastor that was preaching as he was giving the invitation heard this fellow on his knees at the front saying, make me like Joe, make me like Joe. And the young pastor leaned over and said, don't you mean make me like Jesus? And he said, is Jesus like Joe? God's love is personal. And when you truly are embraced by his love, you'll find yourself being a reflection of that love. And as we think about being involved in his story in the next few weeks, remind yourself that God's love is personal, and it'll motivate you to engage in the story. God's love is available. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth. Now, I know particularly in the world we're living in right now in Baptist life, there can be all kinds of arguments of how a person becomes a believer and what's first and what part I play and what part God plays. And I'm going to be honest with you, that's a mystery to me and I don't lose sleep over it. It doesn't bother me that I can't figure it out. The Bible teaches that God called my name before the foundation of the earth to be his, and at the same time, the Bible teaches that I've got to choose, and I can't figure out how those work together, but I think they do. But it's clear that the Bible says, whosoever, it's available. Whosoever will may come. You find that, for example, the text, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It says it in the Old Testament in Joel. Luke repeats it in the book of Acts. Paul repeats it in the book of Romans. And one of the principles in knowing what, how to interpret Scripture is when something is repeated, it matters. It's important. Whosoever will may come. I am not willing, God says, that any should perish. I am not willing to lose any of these little ones. And I want you to know that God's love is available. It's available to you as a believer that's failed. It's, believer, it's available to you if you're not a believer. God's love is available. And our job is to tell the world that it's available. And if you want to be motivated to stay a part of God's story in this coming year, just keep reminding yourself that it's a love that's available. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him should not perish. God's love is non-judgmental. God loves us, and it's about forgiveness. It's not about punishment. It's about restoration. It's not about rejection. It's about salvation. It's not about damnation. It doesn't mean that God won't judge every person because the Bible says He will. There's a time to die and the judgment. But praise God, my judgment has already been meted out. When I was nine years old and I bowed my knee, and with the, with the frail understanding I had of my sin and God's grace at that moment, I had enough to cry out to him. And at that moment, all of my sin was on the back of Jesus, and it was all paid for. So God is going to have to punish sin. It, he, would, he would violate his own nature, his justice, if he didn't deal with sin. But he wants to punish it on the back of Jesus so that he doesn't have to punish it on my back and on yours. He's non-judgmental. In fact, if you go on and read the next verse in John 3, it says he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved.
God's love is non-judgmental, and if you want to be motivated to be a part of his story in the coming weeks, remind yourself of that. Finally, God's love is beneficial. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. So often we use the phrase and we think of <coughs> heaven. <coughs> Someday I'm going to die, and I'm closer to it than I used to be. I didn't appreciate that, amen. <laughs> and we often think that, we often think about eternity in heaven when I die. But there's not only a quantity of life as it expressed in eternal life, there's a quality of life. The reality is that I can experience the quality of life here and now perfectly, no, because I'm not perfect. But I, as I heard somebody say one time, um, he was talking to a professional football player who made millions and millions of dollars, had everything he wanted, except one day something happened that he couldn't explain. And, and this, this pastor said to him, he said, I need to say two things to you. Number one, there is a God. Actually, three things. Number two, the God who is loves you. And number three, that God has a better plan for your life than the life you're living. You see, eternal life means there's also a quality of life, and I would just tell you a personal story to express it. In 1940, I was uh, diagnosed with cancer. And that was when they let you check into the hospital the night before instead of the morning of. And I was scheduled for major surgery. Doctors weren't really sure exactly how pervasive it was. They would know when they got in there. And that Monday night after Kathy had left and other friends had left that had come to pray for me, I found myself lying in the bed doing what any sane, normal, red-blooded person would do. I asked God not to cause me to go through this. I didn't know what was coming. I'd never been in a hospital except to be born. And I'll never forget that night because... As I asked God to not require this of me, it was like he took his hand and put it over my mouth and said, don't ask that, just trust me. He began to flood my mind with all my blessings. I mean, I was born in a home with parents who pointed me toward Jesus. Not so much by what they said, but the way they lived. I... He gave me an opportunity to be involved in music, and for those of you who, who have that aspect, there, there's experience in that, that that you don't get anywhere else. And, and I would even argue, I think Luther said next to, the, uh, next to the Bible, music is the greatest gift God gave the church. And I've had experiences with God that were transformative and encouraging in, in music. I mean, of all things, I got to fly. Now, some of you don't think that'd be fun, but I'm just going to tell you it is. God gave me a wife that has been a support, has loved me the good times and the bad times who came to love God more than she loved me, which gave her the ability to love me more. Two children, and at that time, 
Both of them were in the kingdom. They are now too, but they were old enough to have already accepted Christ. And what I'm saying is, as I lay there, rather than asking God to not cause this to be my experience and rather than having fear, God just flooded my mind with all my blessings. And somewhere in the process, I drifted off to sleep. Next morning, the nurse came in at about 7 o'clock and woke me up. And she said, I came in last night, 9.30, to give you a sedative because the doctor had ordered a sedative to help you to sleep. You were sleeping like a baby. Why? Because there's a quality of eternal life, not just a quantity. God shows up. Story Nover, <laughs> the anesthesiologist came in. And of course, you have to sign that piece of paper that says you understand all the bad things that could happen. He and the assistant turned and left. About five seconds later, the door opened again. And that doctor walked back in, put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, by the way, I just want you to know, I never start one of these procedures without first asking God to guide my mind and my hands. And he turned and walked out. You know what a blessing that is? By the way, that's God's glory. That's God doing what only He can do. And so in these coming weeks, as Luke talks about, as we rehearse, as we talk about God telling His story in this place, and by the way, the story now will be a little different than it was, and in years to come, it'll be different than it is now. But God tells His story, and the question is, am I going to stay plugged into the story? And I think the thing that will motivate me to do that is not my resolution for the new year. It's that I stay focused on how much God loves me. And I would encourage you, take those seven things and periodically think about them. It'll motivate you. I mean, no wonder, no wonder the hymn writer wrote, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Father, we can't touch the hem of the garment of your love. We can kind of describe it. But when we feel loved by you, it's something that we can't fully communicate to somebody else. And I thank you that you love us because of who you are and not because of who we are. And love for you is not an emotion. Love for you is what you do. And because you love, you show up in our lives. Father, I pray that we as a church, as frail as we are, that we will decide to be a part of your story. And Lord, I pray that if there's a person here today that has never experienced your love, that you will draw them to yourself and that they will know that beyond all things, they are loved not because of what they have done or have not done, not because of who they are or who they aren't, but because it is your nature and character 
to love. And I thank you, Father, that you love well. In a moment before we lift our heads, uh, we will sing a hymn of invitation. Invitations are always for all of us. It doesn't mean everybody walks down an aisle. But we can never encounter God's Word without a response. And I encourage you to respond in the way that God's Spirit leads you to respond. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.